0: great attendance i didn't mean to bombard you with papers today uh but there's just a, a lot of neat things I want us to talk about tonight and uh in the days ahead so hopefully all of that'll make sense to you before long um uh, we always want to start with the Lord in prayer and if I could just ask you to pray for us this week, this afternoon had a had a heavy counseling uh, appointment that didn't really go the way I'd hoped and, uh, and you can imagine those that's discouraging. And, and so I uh, wish you all would just pray for us and pray that the Lord would continue to give strength and wisdom and discernment and, uh, and that he would just continue the work that he's doing in so many people's uh, lives here in our church. So Let's just go to the Lord in prayer and then let's, uh, let's dive into what we're here to talk about. Heavenly Father, um, we just come to you, Lord, just humbled, knowing that, Father, we ourselves have no ability to transform people or to transform men or women Uh, Lord, that only comes from you. You are the only one that can change the heart of a man. You're the only one um, that can melt a heart of stone. And so, Father, we just come to you, first of all, submitting ourselves to your sovereign power and your sovereign goodness and acknowledgement of that. Uh, Father, we come to you right now, Lord, asking that you would help us to grow uh, into being students of the Bible that, Lord, you would let us be able to, to mine the depths of this treasure that you have given us so that, Lord, we can know the expanse of your beauty and glory that is found there. Lord, use your word to transform us. Use your word to make us new. Use your word to make us different. Use your word to sanctify and mature us in your image. Father, I pray for each of these that are here tonight, and they are here in expression of their desire to learn about you, and to grow closer to you, and to grow in their worship of you. And so, Father, I pray that you would see this time that they have given as an offering to you, and that, Lord, you would receive this offering, and that you would bless it. Father, may our time today be productive and efficient and effective, but more than anything, Lord, may it. Uh, bring you glory and we ask these things now in jesus's name amen so let me uh that that piece of paper i hand you that has the really really tiny writing on it um i didn't type that one so it's not my fault um but what that is is that tells you what our plan is and what we're going to be teaching over the next year that way you can kind of look through it and you'll be able to catch up and all that stuff and the reason I'm wearing this microphone is not because it makes me louder. As you can hear, I don't really need to be louder, but uh, the micro—you know—that the speakers are not on. But this is so that we can record it and put it online. Um, so you'll be able to catch up if you miss it. We have a number of people, like, like Richard asked he, he He's in Huntsville late every Wednesday night and drives back. And so he wanted it recorded so that he could listen and things like that. So that's going to be available to you too. So if you miss a week, you'll be able to catch back up. But again, as you can see, we're headed somewhere. And so I'm going to ask you again... This class is going to require perseverance. Things worthwhile always require perseverance. I'm asking you on the front end for a commitment. I'm asking you on the front end to persevere in your learning and to persevere uh, in becoming a student of the Bible. Because that's what this is aimed at. Taking, going from being a reader of the Bible to being a student of the Bible. One who is able to search the scriptures for yourself and, and interpret passages of scripture for yourself and apply the Bible to yourself and then to even be able to teach others to teach your children to teach uh, your spouse your family members to teach in our church to be a dis- an effective disciple maker so that's really um, so much of the heart behind this class. I had a couple of people that said last time I do really good with some notes so if like you could give me some notes there's something that I can follow along with um that i can fill in benefit you so what i did tonight and that other piece of paper that's got the red and the black and the highlighter and all that stuff in there that's just a copy of the notes some of the stuff i'm teaching now let me just i just intended that for me to be the only person to ever see that so there's gonna be typos in there i typed it really fast i'm just thinking i wasn't really creating that for mass production so overlook those things um but i just went ahead and printed them you can see where i'm going through i'm gonna be just working Systematically through those notes, you can write on them, you can keep them, you can use them to start fires at your house. You can do whatever feels feels good to you. But that's what that's what that is. And then the article that I gave you, I will uh, I will explain later on, and it will make sense later on. But the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about how where it is and how it is that our Bible came to be. Have you ever really thought about how your Bible became your Bible? Have you ever thought about how the particular books that are in your Bible became to be a part of the Bible and how those and the process of, of what that looked like and what that means? I have found that most Christians have not given a lot of thought in how this book became this book. But I do believe that it's important. I believe that it's important for a number of different way, reasons. First of all, I think it's important when we come to understand the authority of God's Word. That when we can have confidence in the way that the book was put together and in how it was compiled and the, and the superintending of the Holy Spirit that I think is going to be clear throughout the whole process, especially by the time we end next week with the New Testament, I think it will give you an even greater appreciation for the authority of from which the Bible speaks, and give you confidence as you go to your scriptures that this was not just some collection of writings that was wantonly thrown together um, by a random group of people, that this is a God centered process that has been, people have given their lives so that it could be so. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I think it's going to be helpful for you in your family discipleship. You know, as we have children and grandchildren that are living in an increasingly secular age and an increasingly skeptical age, the need to know how we believe, what we believe, why we believe what we believe, and how we came to believe it is more important than ever. To be able to sit down with your teenager and explain to them why it is that we can trust the Bible is critically important. to, to be able to sit down with your teenager and explain to them the difference between this book and all of the other religious books that are available is of the utmost importance. When it comes to evangelism and apologetics and the defense of the faith, it's of the utmost importance to understand how it is that the Bible came to be so that you can speak competently. Because what I have found is when people attack the faith and people, um, an atheist or, or someone else wants to come and, and take aim, they usually have like like two little things that they can point to, but once you get past that, their whole argument falls apart because they haven't thought past that. And so what I want to do is, is to help you, as Peter says, to always be prepared to give a defense for the faith. I think this is one of the, the tools that you can use to have this in your arsenal of I know where the book came from. I know the source. I know how all of this came to be so that I can have a greater confidence in what it, be- what it means. And so we're going to spend some time tonight. Tonight we're mainly going to look at the Old Testament. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Apocrypha. Uh, next week we're going to spend the whole time talking about the New Testament. The New Testament is a bit more of an involved process. Um, it's, it's newer, it's younger, um, and so we, we, we even have more information about uh, the New Testament, uh, and so by the end of next, this week and next week, you'll have both the Old Testament and the New Testament and how those came to be. Now, when we talk about the Bible, what we're talking about are the canons of Scripture. The canons of Scripture, that's C-A-N-O-N, canons of Scripture. And so when we're, so when we're figuring out which books got put into the Bible, we're asking about the process of canonization, all right, of canonization. Now, what that means is is the biblical, the biblical canon, I've got this in your notes, the biblical canon is the closed list of books that have been deemed as uniquely authoritative, meaning they speak to us on God's behalf, and inspired. God is the one that has given to us. Now, it's important to know what we don't mean by canonization. What we don't mean is that, we are, that there's been a group of people that have been somewhere to authorize, uh, to, uh, authorize the Bible the Bible needs no authorization the Bible is given to us by the breath of God the Bible is given to us by the sovereignty of God the Bible is given to us according to the providence of God so there is no man on earth that can say that the Bible is either authoritative or not authoritative the Bible is authoritative regardless of what man thinks So when we talk about canonization, what we are not talking about is the authorization of the book. What we instead are talking about when we talk about canonization is we are talking about bringing together in a collection all of the authoritative books that make up the Bible. And so it's, decide, it's, it's coming to the decision of those books that the Lord has given to us in his authority so that we might be able to hear them speak into our lives, so that we might have the word of God to learn from and apply and dig into and to study. So canonization did not give authority to the writings. Instead, what canonization did was it recognized the inherent authority that was already there. Canonization recognizes the God-breathedness of Scripture, if you'll remember our reference to 2 Timothy 3.16 a couple of weeks ago. Canonization is is recognizing what God has already made. now. Now, this is a big difference between the Protestants and the Catholics, right? Now, the Catholics believe that the church determines what the Word of God is. The Catholics believe that the Pope is, in fact, himself speaking that which is infallible. When uh, Pope Benedict stepped down, I found it a bit laughable. Because when when he he stepped down, I remember watching CNN. Because, you know, usually the Pope dies. Like, we lose the Pope by death. But we had this rare occurrence where Pope Benedict actually stepped down. And when Pope Benedict stepped down on CNN, this is what they say. Now, the Catholic Church no longer believes him to be infallible. What? Like... I don't want to follow someone who wasn't who wasn't infallible then he was infallible then he's not infallible again. Like what does that mean, right? Like how can a person go from speaking error to not speaking error to speaking error once again simply because of the acknowledgement of a title? It's foolishness, right? But the, tr- but the Catholic belief is, is that they are the determiners, they are the keepers of the canons of the Scripture. But the Protestants do not believe that. We do not uphold that. We believe that the Lord himself, through the Holy Spirit, has superintended the process through the uh, church fathers to give us the canons that we have today. That they did not ascribe the authority to the text, that the authority was already there, and they simply recognized the nature of what it really and truly was. So this is a very fundamental difference between the catholic understanding of how the bible came to be and the protestant understanding of how the bible came to be so how did we get our old testament how so let's just talk really quickly about some some facts about the old testament so the book the bible the uh, your old testament contains 39 books now in the jew to the jews if you were to go and you were to find a jewish old testament the jewish old testament would only contain 36 books there are just as many words there are just as many passages of scripture but they divide the books differently I'll explain a little bit more about that in a future in a minute but we have like first and second Samuel they will just have Samuel and it will contain all of those books so they have fewer books if you would have talked to Josephus Josephus was a historian, uh, a Jewish historian that lived around the time of Jesus. So he's been very influential in our understanding of the things that were happening during the times of Christ and about Christ himself because he was a historian documenting history. If you were to look at the Old Testament at the time of Josephus, there would have only been 24 books. But again, it would have been the same number of words. It would have been the same words. The books were just organized differently so at the time of Josephus first and second Samuel would have been one book first and second Kings would have been one book Jeremiah Lamentations would have been one book all 12 of the minor prophets would have just been one singular book and so you can see how the it's the same thing it's just organized differently and so we have broken it down you know more and more and more it makes it a little more searchable uh, and probably it makes it more readable. You know, as as time goes on, our attention spans get shorter and shorter and shorter, right? And so perhaps it makes it a bit more readable and less intimidating for us uh, as well. So the next thing that that sometimes catches people off guard is: Do you know that not everything in your Bible is inerrant? Do you know that not everything in your Bible is inspired? Alright, now I've heard preachers, and I, and I and look. I get what they're saying, I think they're well intentioned, I'm not even being critical of them, but I've heard preachers say, I believe that the Bible is inerrant from the table of content all the way to the maps. Well, not really, you know, uh, th- there, there, it, there are areas in the Bible which are not inspired. Now, before you get really, really nervous, let me explain to you exactly what I'm saying here. For instance, the order of the books are not inspired. The order in which the books are in your Bible are not inspired. They are not inerrant. In other words, if we were to put, if we were to put First and Second Samuel at the end of the Old Testament instead of in the middle of the Old Testament, the Old Testament would still be just as true and just as authoritative as it ever was. It, that's irrelevant. Those books were not even written in that particular order. We have inherited the order that was given to us according to the Latin Vulgate. Okay, so the Latin Vulgate was the translation of the Roman church, uh, especially uh, all the way up until, uh, really, the King James Bible came along. The Latin Vulgate was the, the Bible, okay? And so, we have kind of just adopted that. that The way the Latin Vulgate was organized is the way that our Bibles are organized. It was so prominent worldwide. But if you were to get, if you would have gotten to a, a, a Bible prior to that, if you would have gotten the Bible that was, um, that we go back to the time of Christ, then the Bible would have been organized in three different books. You would have had, or the Old Testament would have been organized in three different books. You would have had the Law, which is the Pentateuch. Okay, we call it the Pentateuch because we're talking about the first five books of the Bible. Right? Penta means five, so we're talking about the first five books of the Bible would make up what we call the Law. You read throughout the New Testament, and often it's making reference to the Law. Right? A lot of the time, it's talking about those first five. Books of the Bible. Sometimes the law actually means all of the Old Testament, but a lot of times it's talking about those first five. Then you would have what they would call history, or I mean or the writings. So the writings would encompass history. The writings would encompass like the wisdom literature, uh, you know, Song of Solomon, uh, Psalms, uh, uh, Proverbs. It would encompass all of that, and then you would have the prophets. So you'd have all the major prophets, and you'd have all the minor prophets. And so they had it organized. In the uh, in the law, the writings, and the prophets. For us, our Bibles are not or, uh, organized chronologically, meaning they're not organized you know what ca- what happened next in the order and the sequence of events. Our Bibles are organized and said topically. They're organized according to particular topics in the way that it kind of fits together. That's why you know if you when you do the read, the Bible in a year class, we encourage you to read it. We, we do it chronologically, right? Because it makes a bit more sense. You know, sometimes when you're reading, if you just start in Genesis and read through and look, I've done that, it's a good way to read the Bible. But sometimes you're reading and you're like, it's really hard to keep up with what all is going on when, right? It's it's really hard to know, okay, so like, are we in exile or not in exile? We were just in exile, now we're not in exile anymore, and then we're going back into exile, so how does all that fit together, you know? And so I think the chronological reading is really, really helpful but our bibles are organized topically so we our bibles are organized as law history wisdom and prophecy and then even within the prophets we see it It starts with the the major and goes to the minor kind of starts with the biggest and works its way down um if you think about the way your your bible is uh, your old testament is organized another thing in your bible that is not inspired and is not inerrant are the chapter and verse divisions so this is a, a pretty cool deal here. Um, as a matter of fact, like the first time I, I saw this, it was actually kind of an emotional thing for me. I don't know why. It was kind of weird, but it was. Um, but this is called the ESV Reader's Bible. And so if you look in the ESV Reader's Bible, there's no verses. Because it actually makes a better reading experience to read without the verses, right? And, and like sometimes, when I read this, I read it totally different. Like For instance, if I'm reading... If I'm reading uh, Romans chapter eight, I already know what 28 says. I already know what 29 says in Romans eight before I ever get there. So I'm almost anticipating them and not even paying attention. Sometimes I can can get distracted and not even be paying attention to what I'm reading up until that point. But when you're reading it without the verses in there, you have no ability to anticipate those things. You don't. So so you so you you you're able to me to focus more on those the text as it is and as it was intended to be read. You read the epistles, like you read um, a- Ephesians. Well, Ephesians was, was was a letter that was written to the church at Ephesus, and it was intended to be read all in one sitting, all at one time, that way, right? It wasn't intended to be read as chapter 1, and then chapter 2, and then chapter 3. And so you if you, without the verses, you can actually go in here, and you can read it, and it feels more like a letter. And, and you, you're able to get a bit better of a better... Uh, experience that way and you know like none of us read any other books that way I think the verses are good and I think the verses are very good for referencing and for preaching and for for uh, memorization all those things but sometimes it's good to read it without them because we don't read any other books that way we're not our minds don't get, can get wound up and distracted by all of those things in there there's actually some some other uh some that are even better than that there's one called bibliotheca that you can look up online and it's really cool. It's uh, so it's written and in, and it's organized the way we just said. So you have the uh, you have the law, the writings, the prophets, the gospels, the epistles. And, and like the, the and so it's the books are actually separa- It's actually separated into other books, and the pages in it have the same thickness that a regular chapter book that you would buy at a store would have. And so it kind of gives you that same reading experience, which is really 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 neat. But the, the verses that we have in our Bibles were given to us um, by Bishop Stephen Langston, and they, were, uh, they weren't they were really even normal standardized until around 900 years after Jesus. And so, you know, like, here's my speech about the History Channel again. Okay, so that means when you watch the History Channel, and they tell you that there's a code that we can use the verses to come up with some masterful code that's going to uncrack, you know, the secrets about Jesus and the keepers of the crypt and the, you know whatever else they come up with, we know those things are not inspired. They weren't even around at the time of Jesus. They were not even used at the time of Jesus. They came well after Jesus. They were not even standard in the Bible until 900 years post-Jesus. So all of that is just foolishness, which again gives me the opportunity to say, do not get your theology from the History Channel. I implore you, do not get your theology from the History Channel. It is wrong, okay? Wrong, bad, not true. So, so when we come to these things, you'll read sometimes in your Bible, and if you read it, it almost feels like the chapter should be over here and not over here. Sometimes when I'm preaching, I'll point things like that out. You know, like, like really, verse 1 of chapter 8 should have been at the end of chapter 7, that that thought is still going on. And when we, when we, when we see that, that doesn't mean all of a sudden we're heretics that don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible that just means that perhaps when when Langston was putting in the verse and chapter de- uh, d- divisions, that he didn't see that clearly, or that he saw it differently than what we see it, and that's that's totally okay. He made an interpretive decision when he was putting in the chapter breaks where he put them, and so that it's, it's really no more significant than that. When we get when we get the Old Testament, it was primarily written um, by the positions of authority. When we come into the Old Testament, who. The primary positions of authority in the Old Testament are prophet, priest, and king, right? That, that those are the people, those are the movers and the shakers uh, of the day. Those are the people that, that were the influencers in the community. Now, you know, we're gonna, I'm jumping ahead to like next semester, but you know what Jesus does, right? Jesus fulfills all three of those. Jesus comes as prophet, priest, and king perfectly fulfilling all of those Old Testament offices, pointing us forward to the Lord, pointing us forward to Christ. Jesus is the great high priest that offers himself as the sacrifice. He is the great prophet that speaks on behalf of God as the word incarnate. He is the king who will reign from on high in, in total and perfect benevolence to his people and on the throne of David that will endure forever, right? So that even in that, we see the the foreshadowing of the Christ that is to come. But those are primarily the authors of the Old Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament were written between 1500 and 430 BC. So you're talking about, like, the Old Testament was written over a thousand year period. A thousand year period. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, have you ever stopped to think that when you're reading the book of Genesis, you're reading a book that could be like, Twenty-five hundred years old. I mean, not, not twenty-five hundred years old. Like four thousand years old. Have you ever? I mean, that's an amazing thought, that you're sitting here reading a book that's like four thousand years old, and that people for four thousand years have went to that book and found life, and found truth, and found encouragement, and found confidence, and been called to be saved by the Lord. That, that's an amazing thought, right? But 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 that's what we have. We have our when we're holding our Old Testament, we are literally holding a book. That was written over a thousand year period, some 3,500 years ago if you go back to probably the publication of Job uh, and some of those older books, which is just insane when you really stop to think about. So, how do we know that we can trust that we have the right Old Testament books? How can we know that we have the right Old Testament books? Just as an aside, I kind of skipped over this. So we do believe Job was the oldest book in the Old Testament, and that Nehemiah is probably the youngest book in the Old Testament. So just in your mind, when you're thinking, again, you're thinking, that that's not the order, right? It starts with Genesis. How is Genesis not the old, oldest book? But we believe that Job lived before Moses, and Moses is the author of of Genesis okay so we, we think Job is probably the oldest and that we believe that Nehemiah is probably the youngest so how do we know that we have the right Old Testament books now honestly the Old Testament we know less about the process of how the Old Testament books came to be a part of the canon than we do about the new again it doesn't it doesn't seem like much but a thousand years in world history makes a lot of difference in documentation Okay, it makes a lot of difference in the world of documentation. It's like when Jeffrey was here with us; uh, he does not know how exactly how old he is. He doesn't know his birth year, because the record keeping in Swaziland fifty years ago was just not up to snuff, right? And so they kind of mark; they would mark it. He said by like the year of the great flood. Well, you know, there might be a great flood three consecutive years, so it can get a a little bit foggy. And so he just remembers that he was in school in elementary school in about 1978, and so he just kind of has to kind of gauge from there. Well, that's a little bit of a picture of the difficulty when it comes to these really, really old books, right? That they happened a long time ago, and record-keeping was just different, and and thought process was just different. Um, And so we're going to have a lot more specificity next week when we talk about the New Testament than we do this week about the Old Testament, but I believe we can still have great confidence in how we came to get our Old Testament. So first of all, you'll see there under the bullet point, practically no one, including even the most liberal scholars, question that the Old Testament that we have is an accurate collection of the books that Christians and Jews have read for thousands of years, okay? So you're going to I want to clarify that term liberal, okay, what I mean by that because I'm not talking about liberal politics. Okay, you understand that's not that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about liberal theology. And so I'm going to use that 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 phraseology a lot over the course of this class and so I want you to understand what I mean when I say liberal. So, liberal thought and theologically speaking really came onto the scene in the 1800s and it kind of the epicenter of it was in Germany. And it really came on about the same time as the enlightenment. Remember you had when when you have those that that enlightenment thought much of which America was born out of right you know that's maybe why we're so easily swayed toward liberal theology but but the enlightenment came onto the scene and basically said everything has rational explanation To be an enlightened person is to no longer believe in phenomenon and instead to believe that everything behind it has a scientific, rational explanation that can be discovered and described by the scientific method. That, that even the human mind, you have Freud coming onto the scene, even, even the, the, the soul of a man, you have psychology and sociology and all of those things being birthed out of the Enlightenment and birthed out of that at the very same time began to be, in, uh, began to be liberal theology. And so what they would do is they would go back to the Genesis account of creation and say, look, that's a pretty story, that's neat. That's got a lot of of things, of morals that it can teach us. It's got a lot of ethics that it can teach us. But we all know the, that people weren't really made that way, right? We we all know that the woman wasn't formed from the rib. We all know that the Lord didn't just speak and everything come Like We know it wasn't. There has to be a rational explanation. They would go to... Um, the parting of the Red Sea and they would begin to study all of the different natural phenomena that perhaps could have taken place that might be able to explain how the Israelite people could see this sea stand up and then walking by and the seas crashing over on, on Egypt. They would, they would look to Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. They come on now. We know that you can't multiply five loaves and two fish into feeding 5,000 people. There has to be a rational explanation. And so they would they were continually coming to these things, and they were either allegorizing them or explaining them away and, and, and explaining how these things were just written for a particular culture and a particular time, and so we can just take the ethics away from it and just let it be a neat story, but understand that that's not really... What happened? That's not really the truth. But what's the problem with that? Did Jesus really raise from the dead or not? Did Jesus really defeat the grave or not? Can can, can Jesus determine life and death or not? What matters about that is the whole Christian faith. What matters about that is the whole authority of the Bible. Because if, if God is not supernatural, if Jesus is not resurrected, if he was not born of a virgin, which is one they take great issue with, if, if Abraham was not asked to sacrifice his son, if, if Genesis was not brought in as God has said it, then we can't trust any of it and not even the moral ethical things are true because an immoral God gave us a dishonest book. But even most liberals, so I say all of that so you understand what, what we're, talking about when we're talking about when we're thinking about liberal theologians. Even those who are highly skeptical of the Bible, even those who are highly skeptical of, of the truthfulness of all of the Bible, without fail will affirm to you that the, the books that we have in the Old Testament are the exact same books that the Jewish people have held as authoritative for over 2,500 years, 3,500 years. That they are without a shadow of a doubt the exact same books that Jesus himself was, re- was, was reading when he said not a dot, not an iota goes that is not going to be totally fulfilled and that is not totally perfect. And so while we have a ton of information on how the books were affirmed uh, and rejected, it seems apparent that most of the books were instantly recognized as authoritative when they were written. In other words, if you would have been there and you would have heard Isaiah, as Isaiah unrolled his scroll and he said, Thus saith the Lord, there was not a single person that within ears' distance that was the people of God that didn't say, That was the word of God. That when Solomon was writing down the Proverbs and the Proverbs that we have that came to be in in that day, they were certain that what he had given them was given to him by the Lord himself and was truthful and authoritative into their lives. And that's the same things that we have today. Again, it's amazing. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that we are literally reading the words that God gave to his people when he needed to rebuke them or when he needed to encourage them when he needed to give them wisdom. When he needed, to, when he needed to, to give them instruction. We have all of it. And we get to read it and get from it the same glory and the same truth that his people have enjoyed for well over three millennia. Second of all. We have the seriousness with which the Jews maintain their scriptures. Now, I talked about earlier about how, you know, record keeping has improved over the, over the years. You know, there was no library of Congress back when Moses was chilling on the earth, you know, and coming in, Canaan didn't come with an archives set up, you know. Um, but the unique thing about the Jewish culture is that the Jewish culture is very proud of the Jewish culture, Right? The Jewish people are meticulous with their family lines. Meticulous, because that determines who gets what land, that determines who gets what in- inheritance, that determines what you're whether you're going to be a Levite at the temple or you're going to be uh, or you're going to be from the tribe of. Of, it, of, of Judah over here in this particular mountainous region, right? Like, all of it, it, it determined literally everything about the trajectory of your family. And so with meticulous, meticulous care, they kept it. In this Bible was their civil law. It was their heritage. It was their history. It was their family trees. It was how their faith and how their God became their God. This was not something that they took lightly. It was something that was of the utmost importance to them, something for which many of them would give their life time and again. It is what Daniel stood firm upon. It is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace with this kind of confidence. It is what Isaiah stood in front of the people knowing that they were not going to be faithful to what he said. And yet he had confidence anyway. It's what allowed Elijah to stand before all the false prophets of Baal and call down fire from heaven. Like that is what this is. This is no small thing. The people of Israel maintained it meticulously, it mattered to them, they would die for it. They had people that they paid, and their entire job was the maintenance of the law. Their entire job was to make sure that the law was maintained and was documented correctly and was overseen properly. And so we know that this we can have confidence in our Old Testament because we know how seriously the people of God were about maintaining it about making sure that it was accurate, about making sure that it was true, about discarding books that were not authoritative and that they did not recognize as being authoritative, so that we have what God and God alone would have for us to have. Thirdly, and I think this may be one of the strongest cases for it, Jesus and the apostles believed that our Old Testament was accurate, complete, and authoritative. Now, I want you to think about what that means. Jesus is, our, is the one that we say is our Savior, that we believe that he lived a perfectly righteous life, sinless unto death, right? He had to so that he could be our substitute. We believe that Jesus was perfectly the Son of God. John 1 says that he himself was the Word and that the Word became flesh, the Word of God incarnate in human flesh. Now listen to what Jesus says about the law. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus points back to all of the Old Testament, and he says that he shows them on the Emmaus Road exactly where he is every step of the way throughout the whole Old Testament. Matthew quotes, uh, qu- quotes the Old Testament explicitly and prolifically throughout his gospel. Over and again, we see them, the New Testament writers, Jesus himself upholding the Old Testament as being authoritative, as being true, as being trustworthy. One of the great questions that one of the books that has caused the greatest amount of question over the last few generations has been the book of Jonah. It was surely Jonah wasn't really a man that really was swallowed by a fish that really lived in the belly of a fish and really talked with God that way and was spat out. Like like surely that's just an, an allegory. Like surely that's just a story that we're supposed to be told so we can feel good about God and know that we're not supposed to do all that. Right. I had a matter of fact, the pastor that I served under, I served under at one point. I, I, Megan and I, we were like just got married that year and like, you know, 21 years old and this pastor stands and he says just suppose that Jonah was really swallowed by a fish and I remember looking at her and her looking at me and thinking, what in the world have we gotten in the middle of here like, how did that happen, right like, just suppose Jesus was raised from the dead, just suppose he really died on the cross, just suppose he was really perfect like, just suppose, right What's the problem with that? In Matthew, Jesus says that Jonah was swallowed by the fish and in the belly of the fish three days and three nights before he was expelled. Jesus says that. Jesus himself. And if we believe that Jesus is sinless, and we believe that Jesus would not deceive us with his words, and that Jesus would not deceive us with his his life, then we cannot believe that Jesus would deceive us about the Bible. We cannot believe that Jesus would tell us something about the Bible that is less than true and less than virtuous. That if Jesus upholds the Bible and we uphold Jesus, then we ourselves must uphold the Bible. We must uphold the Old Testament. Next, we have old, 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 old manuscripts of the Old Testament that affirm that this, in fact, is the same exact book that we have had that the, that the people of God have been enjoying and reading and studying for more than three millennia, okay? So this is what this picture is all about here, and that is what, this is what this article is all about that you guys are holding in your hands. All right, so picture this with me. There's this group of like super, super serious Jews called the Essenes, right? They don't believe the Pharisees are following the law of God strictly enough. And so they go to this place called Qumran, and there's all these caves in this mountainous region, and they basically carve out of this mountain like a monastery where they go and about a hundred of them live, and they just follow the, the, the law as strictly as one could possibly follow it. Well that culture eventually goes away, all right? Their work is gone. They are erased from the annals of history. Nobody really even knows that, they've, that they existed until the 1940s. In the 1940s, you have this young teenage shepherd boy, and he's chasing after one of his lost goats, and he thinks that one of these goats might have went and got up on one of these caves, and so he takes a rock And he throws it up in the cave, hoping to scare the goat out so that he can go and collect the goat. When all of a sudden, he hears something break that sounds like glass or like clay. And when he goes up into the cave, he climbs up in there to see what that was because this is what this is. This is the cave we're talking about. This is in Qumran. This This is overlooking um the dead sea he climbs up you can see that it, it's less than convenient to get there right so so he, he climbs up there he gets in there and he sees all of these jars and inside of these jars are these these parchments these these parchments that are that are rolled up and they've been placed inside the the jars if you read in the book of jeremiah jeremiah says that we store the scrolls, we store the parchments in the jars for long-term keeping. So you're, you're seeing it lived out right here, right? He go, and, and he pulls out and he's like, doesn't even know what he's found. Like, this is no big deal. And so he runs down and everybody, and all of a sudden you know what they think. Man, there's some money to be made right here. And so they begin to, to cut them up and sell them in the market when all of a sudden, one day, a Bible scholar comes across them and recognizes exactly what they are. They are, in fact... Books of the Old Testament that were 1,000 years older than any other, uh, any other manuscripts that we had at the time. We're talking about books that are 400 years older, manuscripts that are 400 years older than Jesus. We're talking about the very same scrolls that would have come from the time period that predated Christ in the intertestamental time. All right? so So you can see this is the... This is the cave that we're talking about. Now I've got some pictures of what some of the scrolls would have looked like. This was one of the, de- if you've ever heard the term the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's what we're talking about. These are the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is one of the pieces of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's really, really cool. This is part of Isaiah. And so you can see it in the perfect Hebrew. Um, and how beautifully written it was. Hand, all of it hand done. The largest manuscript that they found was the book of isaiah and that is the whole book of isaiah in total completion minus a couple of of uh, tattered edges this is the whole book of isaiah that is we're talking 400 years older than jesus this is what jesus is reading this is what jesus is talking about when he's talking in matthew chapter 5 it's mind-blowing if you if you really think of it that way and you know what they found there Every single book of the Old Testament, minus the book of Esther. The book of Esther was the only book in our Old Testament canon that was missing. That these people, so, and and we have not found them all. That does not mean they didn't have the book of Esther. It just was not in the collections that were found. Some of them were looted and sold and lost and that kind of thing. But these people, so strict in the law, they upheld the same Old Testament books that we uphold. And by the way, you know what they found too? the manuscripts that we had been reading the manuscripts that we had been studying for 2000 years were accurate and true even though these were much older cuz when when you're doing interpret when you're doing translation work you want the oldest work that you can you want the oldest manuscripts possible right you want those that have been filtered through the fewest amount of hands those that those that are as close to the original publishing date as possible those are are the ones that you know aren't you know aren't missing a comma aren't missing a period somewhere When they went back, they found that it was almost perfectly exactly what we already had in our Old Testament at that point in time. That the people of God had not been reading inaccurate copies of his word. Incredible. Incredible. Yes. Oh, yes. Lots of political tension. That's exactly right. And there's a lot of claim to it. Who who does the money belong to? Who who do the, so what, 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 and and it alludes to that. So that, so originally, between the 40s and the 50s, they found 11 caves. They found 11 of these caves that were, um, that were there that contained these, these scrolls, that contained these parchments of, of the, uh, the word of God. They always believed that there might be a 12th cave. The twelfth cave was discovered this year. It was only released to the public last week. So the article that I printed out for you is the discussion of the Hebrew University that has, that has been doing the archaeological dig and has found this twelfth cave that is certainly they believe 100% a cave that was from this same era. Um, unfortunately, it has been looted and many of the most of the things have been lost. But all of the same pots are there. They have, some, they have shreds of parchments that are still there uh, and things like that. And they think now there may even be a 13th cave. And they believe that the evidence that they have of the 13th cave is that the, that cave would be concealed and probably not looted. Um, and so they are in pursuit of that. But that's been 70 years, y'all. 70 years later. And, uh, I mean, you know, it just couldn't be an accident that we're talking about that today. And that just came out. It was literally released last week. I think the article says February 8th. That was just coming out into the world. Um, which is really an amazing thing. But it's an amazing picture, and we're going to talk about this a whole lot more next week. But it's really an amazing picture of all that the Lord God has done to preserve the accuracy of His Word, to preserve the truthfulness of His Word, to to, to reaffirm again and again and again to His people that what you're reading is the truth, that what you're reading is what I want you to read. That what you're reading is what I always intended for you to read. And so he, he gives us over and again throughout history, even going back into biblical th- biblical times, he would do things that would just reaffirm that what I have is the truth. What I have is really the book. What I have is really God's inerrant, God-breathed word. And I think this is yet another interesting uh interesting aspect of that and so just by the sheer age of the manuscripts and the the way the manuscripts were organized again we just have greater confidence that what we have is in fact the bible is in fact um the old testament that jesus himself was referring to when he upheld it as the word of god finally jewish historians such as josephus i mentioned josephus earlier um unilaterally affirm that the same books with the same content as being the affirmed Word of God. In other words, so we have the, the book, and then when we go back and we read the works of Josephus, remember I told you he was very in, a very influential historian from the time of Jesus, whenever Josephus refers to the words of God, to the, to the Old Testament canons, he's always referring to these books. He, he na- he's not ever referring to the other books. He's not ever referring to, uh, to the Apocrypha, which we're fixing to talk about. He's only referring... To these Old Testament books, and that's why we uphold these as being divinely inspired and inerrant, and the others, we do not. So, does anybody have any questions about that part? Anybody? We can, I can entertain a question or two if anybody has. They, I, they have a process that I'm, I'm not sure. They, I mean, they have carbon dating and do all those kinds of things. I'm sure, but I'm not exactly. Process had to ask somebody smarter than me. I could probably I can probably do some research and send you an article or something. Yeah, I would be curious about that too, but I'm not 100 percent sure how they date the manuscripts. I think so, some of it will have to do with the uh, the style of the r- of the parchments. They can, you know, when when that particular type, because the papers that are used are woven together, and so it would have been you know those things evolve over time too, and so that that places it in a certain date. But I to how they pinpoint it, I couldn't say. I, th- I don't know. The ones that I have seen were not sealed. The ones that I have seen are like a clay pot. And, and I mean, it looks just like our clay pots. You know, it's like big, and then it comes up like this, and, you know, stuff down in there. But but I don't know that they didn't take a seal off of it before they took the picture. Um, but all the ones that I have seen did not have a seal on top. So it's really fascinating, though, to think. I mean, wouldn't you just like to be the guy that stumbles in up on that? I mean you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you know. So... It'd be uh, it would be an amazing sight, yeah, Sam. Yeah, I don't want to get too far here because I'm going to talk about that a lot. I've got I'm actually going to hand you guys out a document that I made um, pretty soon. But so like sometimes you'll you'll read your bo- like if you take the King James Authorized Version and you lay it beside your ESV and this is what so, and i'm going we're going to talk about this a lot more so don't freak out and somehow i just messed up my thing here i don't know what this is okay i don't want to do that sorry okay sometimes if you have your KJV authorized version and you lay it beside your ESV your KJV is going to have a lot more words in it than the ESV does because what happens is all these things were hand hand copied there was no printing press at the time when all of this is going down so they had groups of people that are that are handwriting, and they're going, and they're, and that's their job. I mean, they're they're just and because they're wanting to multiply it so that the people of God can read it, right? Well, what happens when you handwrite anything? You make you make mistakes, right? You 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 might accidentally skip over a word, or you might accidentally jump down two lines and skip over a line, and that might be omitted from what you're having. And sometimes what would happen is you would have. A, a priest who would go over in the margins, and he might add a note. Well, the next group didn't know if that was the part of the word or if that was a note from the priest. And so a lot of times those, those footnotes might get added in, or those marginal notes might get added into the manuscripts over time. And so that's why you want the oldest ones possible, right? Because there become these variants that kind of find themselves into the, into the text. And so you want the text with the fewest amount of variants. And we're going to talk about the variants. Don't let the variants freak you out yet, okay? We don't have time to go in-depth on textual criticism just yet but but you have to, so so these variants find them, themselves find their way in and so what you want is the oldest versions well the reason that the KJV has more words in it than the ESV is because the KJV was written according to Alexandrian manuscripts which are younger manuscripts Th- that we, in other words that was the best manuscripts they had at the time they were they're very sound they're very true there there's not none of the differences are make a profound difference in doctrine or theology or the gospel they're small things most of them but but it added in some so later on we found these older manuscripts what we would call alexandrian manuscripts in terms of the new testament or dead sea scrolls in terms of the old testament and we found and then we were able to go and we were to lay the the younger manuscripts beside the older manuscripts, and we were able to see that some words were inadvertently added. And so the ESV has fewer words in it because it takes out those words that were added in the newer manuscripts and, and relies more upon the older manuscripts. And the New American Standard is the same way. Um, the NIV is the same way. But that that's why you have more words in one translation than you do in the other. In case you And I'll explain more of that in, in the weeks ahead. Is that what you were, were you getting at, Sam? yeah <coughs> <laughs> that'd be the version I was in charge of probably that's what that's the mistake I would actually end up making. Whatever you do, commit adultery. <laughs> all right, so why does the Old Testament stop when it does? Why does it end in the book of Malachi? It's because of the story of redemption, right? Remember, and we're going to talk more about this in the days ahead, but all of this is plugging into a meta narrative. All of this is plugging into the big picture of what God is doing in salvation. And so Malachi is the end of the Old Testament because what does it end doing? It ends with the awaiting of the Messiah. It ends in the anticipation of the Messiah saying, After this, the, word, the next word that will come will be, Behold, the Lamb of God, the, the one who will come in the strength of Elijah, Malachi says. right? And so it, it ends there. Because the Lord intended for there to be a, a time of silence and so of silence, four hundred years of silence, and so Malachi is telling you on the front end, don't expect any other words until the one comes, until the forerunner comes, until until the Lamb of God, the one in the Spirit of Elijah comes. And again, we'll talk about that more next week too. All right, very quickly because we're running out of time. Uh, let's talk about the apocrypha. The apocrypha. So the apocrypha is the books of the Bible that describe the intertestamental period during that 400 uh, that 400 year period of time. If you were to get a, a Catholic Bible, the Catholic Bible has in it the Apocrypha and the Catholics would never ever 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 call it the Apocrypha. Because the apocrypha actually means the hidden words or, or words that are less than inspired, words that are, are less than inerrant. So the Catholics would call what we would call the apocrypha, the Catholics would call deuterocanonical, and a you know, second canon, uh, extra additional canon, because they believe that it was inspired. So why do we not believe that the apocrypha is inerrant? Why do we not uphold the apocrypha? Now, the Apocrypha can be okay for reading. I think it's good. It, it informs us how the Pharisees come onto the scene. Matter of fact, in the Iron City Baptist Church hymnal on page, I did the research one time on page our number six thirty-eight is the song Now Think We All Are God, and it is literally taken from the Apocrypha. Okay? So not and, and I don't think we're necessarily unfaithful in doing that, but the Apocrypha is not inerrant. And so so it's helpful but not inerrant. How can we know? I think, first of all, um The Jews who authored these books never accepted them into their canon. So the Jews, remember we've talked about how meticulously they uphold their history, how meticulously they uphold the script. Josephus, none of the Jews believed that the Apocrypha was inspired. None of them believed that the Apocrypha was, in fact, the Word of God. Speaking of this, if you ever wonder where Catholics get purgatory, or where they would get faith, you know, Catholics don't believe in faith alone saves you. They believe faith plus works. They get that from the apocrypha. Um, they get that's where they get the praying over the dead. Um, they believe that Jesus experienced hell literally. Um, they get that from the all those things come from the apocrypha. If you've ever wondered like where are some of those theological things they they go f- get, they that they ascribe to that we do not come from a lot of them come from the apocrypha. But okay, so the Jews ne- the author of the books never accepted them into their canon. Secondly, it contains clear, factual, and theological errors. When you read the Apocrypha, you will read a lot of contradiction. Uh, a lot of it is in outlandish language and like that was never intended to be taken as seriously as it was. It was, not, it was just not written that way. And so if you took the Apocrypha as being divinely inspired, there's some parts of the New Testament you could not take as being inspired because uh, there is contradiction. And I know you're wanting examples, but I did not write down any examples. I'm sure I could find this for you. The Roman Catholic Church itself did not recognize uh, it as being uh, authoritative or inspired until the Council of Trent in 1546. Does anybody here know what the Council of Trent was in response to? Anybody? The Reformation, exactly, from Luther's Reformation. So the Council of Trent was the Catholic Church's Great response to all that Martin Luther and these crazy Protestants were, were doing. And so they were going to fix it. And so they, they decided, well, this is one of the things that makes us very different. And so they at that point canonized it and said that it was inerrant. But the Latin Vulgate, you remember that Latin Vulgate we talked about earlier that they said was the the Bible, the, the one. Remember, that was one of Luther's issues that they would not write it in the common languages for people to read, that they wanted it in Latin they didn't think it should be in these barbaric languages, even though in the beginning people considered Latin to be a barbaric language. But, you know, what if? Uh, You know, we loved our hypocrisy. But do you know who translated the Latin Vulgate? That would be a brother by the name of Jerome, all right? And do you know what Jerome said when he included the Apocrypha in the Latin Vulgate? He said, these are helpful. These are not inerrant. These are not these are not authoritative. These are just good for you to have. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to translate them into Latin so that you can read them, but understand that these come with, a, with, with much less weight than the rest of it. Jerome himself said that, and the Catholic Church defied that. So for 1,500 years of the Catholic Church, they did not believe that the Apocrypha was inspired and inerrant, um, as they do today. So that says something. And then perhaps most damning, Against the Apocrypha, not a single time, not a single time in the whole New Testament do any of the authors, do any of the apostles quote the Apocrypha as being authoritative. It would have been more contemporary to them. It would have been closer in their school of thought, but they never quote it as being truthful. They never quote it as being the Word of God. No, again and again and again. They're quoting Leviticus. They're quoting Deuteronomy. They're quoting Isaiah. They're quoting Ezekiel. They're not quoting First Maccabees. you know. So we can have great confidence that that, in fact, is not inspired. So thank you all for your attention. I uh, hope you find it interesting. I hope you find it helpful. Next week we're going to go and we're going to look at the New Testament and, uh, and how we got our New Testament and how we can have confidence in our New Testament. And as I said, we'll have greater specificity um, to speak with. Let me pray for you all um, as you go out about your weeks.